0: Well, good morning. Thank you all for coming and worshiping with us today. Uh, My name is Jason Averill. I am one of the pastors here at Grace. And today, we're going to be continuing our series on what is God, studying who God is. And we're going to study what it means that God is infinite. So last week, Wilson kicked us off with what theology is, what the study of God is and the importance of studying God. And now we're going pedal to the metal into the into the deepest part of who God is that he is infinite. So, let's pray and then we'll start. Father, you are perfect and matchless, and majestic, and glorious. Lord, you deserve nothing but honor and praise. And we thank you. We thank you for drawing us here to hear your word. We thank you for drawing us to yourself. Lord, We do pray that as we turn to the text today, that uh, (laughs) this, this concept of you being infinite that is so difficult for us to grasp, that you illumine our minds to it, let us draw comfort from it. Lord, it is too much for us to grasp. And yet, it is something that you have given us. Jesus, we do thank you that you came as the perfect image of our Father to show us who he is. And we thank you for your work on earth, living the life that we should all live and dying the death that we should all die. And proving the Father's love for us and your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the Father's glory. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you be with us. Turn our eyes toward our great Savior. Let us see him clearly and behold him in new and fresh ways. And in doing so, move our hearts to worship. Amen. All right, so... About six years ago, maybe seven, I'm kind of fuzzy a little bit on the date, uh, we went on a hike up to uh, Mount St. Helens. And my father-in-law, you know, he, he's getting a little bit older, and he wanted to gather together all of his family so that he could take them on this amazing hike up St. Helens. And so we went up to Washington, and we got to St. Helens at about 5.30, maybe 6 in the morning. And we started off. And it's about a six-mile hike up there, uh, up to the summit. And it's almost, but not quite, a full mile that you're ascending. And you start out in this mountain forest. And you can't really see anything but trees. And you're winding your way constantly up. And then finally, you get to this ridge. And as you look up at the ridge, you see something behind it. And you think, that's the summit, I'm going there. And so you get up on this ridge and you walk up on uh, the ridge and across and up on all these boulders and you come around a bend and all of a sudden you see that the summit that you saw wasn't the summit. There's actually something behind it that's much bigger, much bigger. And so you're like, okay, well, it's still not all that far away. You know, we've been at it for three hours, but still not all that far. So we keep going. We go over the boulders, and then we get to this pea gravel section, and we go around the pea gravel section, and then we look up again, and again, the summit that I had seen was not the summit. There was something beyond it, and we got to what, it's the last thousand feet that you're climbing, and it's just ash just complete volcanic ash and every step you take you actually slide back down about a half a step and so it's it's grueling to get up there and then it took us about an hour to go that 1000 feet we finally crest the summit and we're tired worn out we've been hiking nonstop for 6 hours and we sit down we have lunch and i start reflecting and this, the entirety of the trip had done nothing but kind of convince me of the immensity of the mountain that I was on. But then I'm looking out over the crater. This is the, the big attraction to St. Helens because it blew up. You know, in 1980, it blew up. And so once you get up there, you look down into this crater and you see this immense mountain that you've just climbed it spent six hours on, and the whole back half of it is gone. It's just missing. It's a crater. And then if you look out farther, you see a lake out in the distance. And in the lake is just piled all the timber that it had blown down an entire forest and tossed it into the lake when it blew up. And you start thinking about the immensity of the power of that volcanic eruption. And it makes you feel small. And it makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel tiny and powerless. Now, last, uh, last fall, we actually went out on another hike. And we went to Arches National Park. And one of the great things about Arches is that you can go there at night. And so we did. And there's great stargazing And we went there, and we set up shop. We had our little Coleman lantern, had hot chocolate, and it was great. Except when you lay down on the ground to look up at the sky, you're confronted by an immensity of stars, more than I had ever seen before. You can see the Milky Way, and it becomes too big. You can't take it all in. And again, I start feeling unsettled, uncomfortable. Very small. Very small. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Most people, when they're confronted with the enormity, with the immensity of creation, they do have that feeling, that feeling of being a very small piece of a grand design. And when we study the things of God, the greater things of God, The same thing happens, but to a much greater degree, because God is so much bigger than even the mountain. He's so much bigger than the vast expanse of the galaxies that I was seeing. He's huge. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, the infinite immensity of God. So uh, our sermon text today is Isaiah chapter 40. It's verses 9 through 31. I'm not going to have you all stand because it's, it's a pretty long section and uh, I don't want you standing that long. So. Isaiah chapter 40 starting in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are all accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not be faint. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fall. But not God's word. It stands forever. Let us turn our attention to it. So, today we're going to be looking at three things from the text. We're going to be looking at what it means that God is infinite. We're going to be looking at our reactions to the fact that he's infinite. And then we're going to be looking at the comfort that we can get from that. So, what does it mean that he's infinite? How do we react to that? And what comfort can we get from that? So what do we mean when we say that God is infinite? Well, I think most of us from math class have just kind of an intuitive grasp on what infinite means. You know, it means boundless, it means limitless. You know, if you go back to the number line in math class, it extends off into infinity. There's always another number coming after it. That's kind of what we mean, kind of what we mean when we say that God is infinite, but that it's really kind of far away and esoteric, and it's hard to grasp what that means. And theologians, when they've, when they've looked at this, when they've looked at the person of God, and they've tried to come up with a definition of God, if you will, they've always gone to what God has said about himself in Scripture. And so they go through and pour through all of Scripture and find all the things that God says about himself, and then they categorize them. And they systematize them, and they call them God's attributes. This is what God has said about himself. And these attributes, you know, we know them, a lot of them at least, somewhat through analogy. Because we're made in the image of God. So there are some of the attributes that we have as well. We know what it means to exist. We know what it means uh, to have knowledge, to have wisdom, to have power. Because we have those things as part of the image of God. And so, when theologians come to the definition of God and they start thinking about God's attributes and they say, Well, look, God has these attributes and so do we. How is he different? And so, they look further. And they come up with really uh, two different classes of attributes. And in the Reformed camp, this is how we we express them. We say that he has shared or communicable attributes. That's attributes that he has himself that he can give to his creation. That he can give to his people. And then he has incommunicable attributes. Those are not shared. Those cannot be given to anyone else. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism comes up on this and in their definition of God, they say, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's a big definition. And, you know, if you're writing it down, just just write down Westminster Shorter Catechism 4. That'll, that'll take care of it. You can look it up later. He's infinite, eternal... And unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And what they've done there is they've listed ten attributes. And the first three of those are called incommunicable. They're things that God cannot give to his creation because they're part of who he is as his own being. They cannot be communicated. He cannot make somebody infinite he cannot make somebody eternal he cannot make somebody unchangeable because that's who god is in his essence those are only for him and then we have seven communicable his being his wisdom his power holiness justice goodness and truth and those are things that he can give and what's interesting in the way the shorter catechism has has kind of framed this is that the first three, those incommunicable attributes, they inform all of the other attributes. And so he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in each one of those. So that's somewhat of what it means that God is infinite. So let's turn to the text. Verse 12 and 13. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? We see there God's immensity, his being. That's what it means that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. That he is immense. He is so great, so vast, that he can hold the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. He is so vast that he can measure the heavens. We can't even do that. Even today with all of our technology, whenever we try, we run up against this cosmic barrier. It's called the universal horizon. And we, uh, we can't see past that. And if we can't see past it, we can't measure it. But God can. He weighs mountains and his scales and the hills. But it's more than that. His immensity and his being is more than that. So in verse 22, we see who brings to nothing. Sorry, that's 23. 23. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. In verse 28, the Lord God is everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth. And so we get this picture of God being separate, from his creation. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. And that means that he's he's apart from it. It means that his being is what everything else is based on. It means that he's in all places, at all times, throughout all of history. He's everlasting. And he is the ever present one so we move on to his wisdom what is his wisdom that's that's his knowledge that's his what he knows and how he practices that knowledge how he acts upon it and so in verse 13 and 14 we have what man shows him his counsel whom did he consult and who made him understand who taught the paths him the paths of justice Taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. The picture that we get from the text is that God is so vast, so infinite in his understanding that nobody could ever teach him anything. He knows everything. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him forever. He has them all. His power is next. Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. His power is so great that even the greatest nations on earth have, cannot stand against it. In fact, if you go down to verse 28, we won't read it again, but it says that he's the one that actually gives power to everybody else, that he's the source. And so when we say that God is infinite in power, it doesn't just mean that he has boundless power. That is part of it. He has boundless power, limitless power, but he is the source of all power that everybody else has. Everybody lives and moves and has their being in him. His holiness, that's what makes him set apart. It makes him set apart from sin, set apart from the world. And it's he, in it, he is devoted to his honor and his glory forever and ever. His justice is infinite. What does that mean? That means that he always does what is right. He always does. Pursues punishment of sin. He always pursues righting of wrongs. His justice is perfect, is infinite. There's nothing that escapes his notice and nothing that needs not to be addressed. He doesn't by no means clear the guilty. And yet, at the same time in Romans, we see that his justice is so infinite, so vast that he is not only just, but he is the justifier of people because he can't pass over sins. They have to be punished one way or the other. His goodness, he's perfect in his goodness, he's infinite. He is the source of all goodness. In his truth, there's no falsehood in him, he can't lie. He always acts in accordance with what he has said about himself. He always acts perfectly, truly, infinitely right and true. And of course, Jesus in John claims that that he is the truth in the life. So, all of that, you know, is it really just doesn't kind of scratch the surface of what it means for... ...for God to be infinite and of course it can't because part of what it means to be infinite is that it keeps going. And so you can go deeper and deeper into any of those attributes and you will find an inexhaustible wealth of knowledge of who God is. Just by going through them. But it is a start. It's a start to have a framework to think about what it means that God is infinite... But now that we have that framework kind of built, how do we react to it? You know, when we see the immensity of God, when we see his perfection, when we see his perfect, infinite holiness, justice, goodness, truth, when we see his power, how do we react to that? Well, there are a few different ways. First, and kind of foremost, we react with awe. Because we come up against something that we can't understand, we can't comprehend. We can apprehend it, he can tell us about it, but we can't comprehend it, we can't get our minds around it. And so, we have that awe response. But it makes us uncomfortable. Just like I was uncomfortable on the mountain, just like I was uncomfortable looking at the vast expanse of the stars contemplating the vastness of God makes us uncomfortable because he's too big and so in many ways we try to do whatever we can to make that image of God manageable there are many different ways that we do that um in the text we see starting in verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare him with? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver <coughs> casts for it silver change. Anytime that we try to lessen God, we are actually making an idol. That's kind of what an idol is. It's, it's fashion, in this case, it's fashioning a likeness of God that is manageable, that you can look at, that you can control, that you can understand. This is the same thing that happened in the, in the episode with the golden calf. The golden calf wasn't the Israelites worshiping a foreign deity. It was them crafting a bull out of gold and saying that that bull Was Yahweh. That's who it was. And worshiping that. And they were trying to. Get their mind around. Who God was. And they thought they were doing a good thing. That they were bringing out. God's power. But. In crafting the idol. They were actually making God small. It's. It's kind of like. Um, it's kind of like, you know, for us, you know, we don't craft physical idols. But what we do is we focus on one or two aspects of God to kind of make him manageable. Maybe if I can just understand this. We see this all the time with people who double down completely on God's mercy And love when they double down on God's goodness. Because invariably when people do that. They give up his justice and his truth. They have focused on one thing. They have reduced him to a manageable size. God is loving. God will forgive all sins. You are safe and protected. And they, they give up the true fact that God is not just loving. He is also just. And that he cannot clear the guilty. There are many other ways that we that we do that. Now. So our reactions are always to try to make God manageable, make God small, and That quiets that holy fear that we have whenever we come up against the immensity of God. And so, that's how we tend to react. So how should we react? Well, first and foremost, like I said, go back to the beginning You react with awe and fear and trembling. And you accept the fact that you're not going to comprehend the vastness of God. You're not going to make him manageable. And it's interesting, though, how the Lord begins this entire section. Because that feeling of awe, that feeling of fear, that's very right. But that's not what he was going for when he wrote this. When he wrote this, listen now. he starts out. Go, up, <clears throat> go up on up to a high mountain O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. When he starts out, He's actually framing this, everything that comes afterward, as a comfort to people. He's framing this as good news. The fact that he is infinite, matchless, and wonderful. That he is just. That he is holy. This is knowledge that we have been given to comfort us. So why don't we find it comforting? Well, Part of why we don't find it comforting, you know, all throughout this sermon, we've been talking about the infinitude of God. We've been talking about his transcendence, and he is the transcendent one. He is the the holy other one of whom we cannot know. He is high. He is mighty. He is far away. His, His ways are unfathomable his will is inscrutable his knowledge and wisdom is unsearchable but whenever we see something that's so big that it's that far away our natural reaction is to fear it is it is that awe response which is proper but That's not the only way he reveals himself. In fact, one of the things that's great about God is that he didn't stay far away. Is that he has come to his people. And we see that right there at the beginning of the text. That even though he is the transcendent God, he is also the imminent God. He is also the God who has come to his people. And in fact, we see that on full display throughout the entirety of the Old Testament... We see that in his relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see that in his relationship with Abraham, with the people in the desert, with David. We see it here, that he is coming. And that should, of course, inspire comfort. But by itself, it really doesn't. You know, if you look at the time in the desert, they knew very powerfully that God was with them all the time. They had a a pillar of uh, smoke and fire that would follow them around. They saw and witnessed God's power. They knew that he was with them. He was the imminent God, even though he was transcendent. And many of them were struck with fear because of it. In fact... In Numbers chapter 11, they even charge him as being with them only so that he could destroy them. And so, having God with you doesn't just solve the problem. You need something else. You need to know not only that God is with you, but that he's for you. We see that here in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And then at the end, the very end of the section, verse 30 and 31 Even youths shall faint and grow weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so you get a picture of the Lord here that he is not just with his people. He is not just coming to be with them, which could in itself be comforting but could also be terrifying. No, he is for them. In fact, he is coming as a shepherd. He is coming to care for them. More than that, he's willing and able to use his power, his infinite power, for their good. Now, how do we know, of course, that that God is like that with us? It's great to see that in the text. It's great to see him interacting with the Israelites like that? How do we know that he is not only with us, but for us? It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. In Jesus, we have the unfathomable I'm going to get that word right sometime, eventually. We have the transcendent God who has become uh, a human. Who has come down who has emptied himself of his glory of his might and he became a human and dwelled amongst us and he did so for a specific purpose he did it so that he could show people who god truly was and so that he could come and redeem his people by earning the righteous <coughs> earning sorry the righteous record that they need to be in the presence of God forever and for dying a death on their behalf. And in his coming, God is able actually to become both the just and the justifier. He is able to be with us for all eternity. And in Jesus, we are able to see, so says the book of Hebrews Who God is because he is the exact imprint of his nature. And all the treasures of glory, wisdom, power, majesty, and might are in Jesus. And the answer to every promise has been amen. So, so what? What do we do? The great thing about studying God and studying theology is that there's always more to learn. You know, Wilson kind of drew this out last time. And the infinity of God kind of speaks to that. That the deeper you go into studying God, the more you know of him. The more you know of who God is, the more you know of who Jesus is. The more you know of who Jesus is, the more you know he loves you. The more you know he loves you, of course. The more safe and secure that you will feel. You'll know that nothing in the world can stand against you because if God is for you, who can be against you? And so... I would actually double down on looking into that vast expanse. Even though it might make you uncomfortable, remind yourself that you are safe. That Jesus has purchased you for the Lord. And that you have nothing to fear from him. Amen. Let us pray. Father it's hard to know what to say when faced with such grand truths that you have given us we feel small and inadequate we feel Lord like um, we are completely unworthy of the knowledge and completely unable to grasp it we try and it slips through our fingers and We ask, Lord, though. We ask that you reveal yourself to us more powerfully every day. Give us the assurance that we need as we look into these deep things that you are for us and not against us. And that in Jesus, because of his blood, clothing us in his righteousness washing us clean of all of our sins because of that we can stand before you safe and secure and experience the joy and pleasure of getting to know you more and more every day and from now